Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. My guest today needs very little introduction. That being said, she perhaps deserves the best introduction of all time, which would probably only occur if she were to write it herself, but I'm going to give it a good go. An award-winning journalist, podcaster and author, this is the woman who has not only taught an entire nation of success-wielding workaholics how to fail, but also how to feel, how to move forward and how to find comfort in the uncomfortable. I am, of course, talking about Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth grew up in Northern Ireland and began her journalism career at just 12 years old as a youth columnist for the Derry Journal. Her early 20s saw her graduate from Queen's College Cambridge with a history degree before working as a journalist reporter for various papers, including the Evening Standard, the Sunday Telegraph and the Observer, where she stayed for nine years. Her 20s on paper were a plethora of professional success. A well-renowned, award-winning journalist on the rise, gifted with a perfect balance of empathy and intellect that allowed her to write and communicate at an incredibly high standard. However, running parallel to a successful professional career was a difficult and complex personal life. In her early 20s, Elizabeth suffered the tragic loss of an ex-partner, which in turn set in motion a fear of losing loved ones, pertaining to romantic relationships in particular. Her 20s contained a series of long-term partners, or mini-marriages as she likes to refer to them, and throughout the decade she struggled with people-pleasing tendencies, lack of confidence, and the continuous fear of feeling like she was never or could ever be enough. Since leaving the decade behind, Elizabeth has gone on to some extraordinary achievements, publishing seven books, including her award-winning debut novel, Scissors, Paper, Stone, and her brilliant non-fiction work, How to Fail, Part Manoir, Part Manifesto. She has also helped thousands of women across the UK in her honest and deeply moving recollections of personal struggles with relationships, divorce, and conceiving children. Elizabeth's willingness, bravery, and sheer vulnerability to raise such important topics is what makes her, in my opinion, the best interviewer around, and it is no surprise that her famous podcast, How to Fail, recently hit over 20 million downloads. Her most recent venture, Magpie, a fictional psychological thriller, hits shelves this September and it might just be her best piece of work yet. It's hard to imagine what this spectacularly intelligent, driven and accomplished person could possibly be doing on a podcast meant for people who have no clue what they're doing or where they're going in life. But if there's one thing Elizabeth Day has taught me over the years, it's that no matter what your perceived level of success is or when it comes, we are all just human beings trying to find our way. We fear, we fall and we fail. I cannot believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but Elizabeth Day, welcome to 20 Not Something. Oh my God, I'm crying. <laughs> what have you done to me? <laughs> that was the most amazing introduction I have ever heard about myself. Not only did you get everything factually correct, but it was so beautifully written. I feel so seen. I feel so honoured that you like know me so well. That is honestly, I'm blown away. You've literally made me cry. <laughs> Oh my God. Or I'm just your number one stalker either way. I mean, (laughs) no, I'm so honored, honestly, to be on this podcast. And I'm just really thankful that you 
have taken the time to really understand what I try to do and been so supportive from day one. Thank you so, so much. It is just, it's, it's, you know, so lovely for me to be here. And it's one of the only, only podcast interviews I wanted to do because of everything you have said and done and the amount of times you've referred to me on your brilliant podcast so I'm really deeply flattered thank you (laughs) thank you oh my gosh I'm it's an honor for you to be here honestly it is and you know philosophy there was a whole chapter dedicated to how we fell in our 20s so I can't wait to get into this with you um but one thing that I wanted to ask you first off, which is what I ask everyone, is when you were looking into your 20s decade, can you remember what the one thing you wanted the most was? I think the one thing I wanted the most, and I, I sort of regret that this was the thing that I wanted the most, but it was to find my person romantically. And because I still had that notion that is quite naive and inherited from a series of, you know, 1980s rom-com movies, that there was one person who I would instantly connect with in that kind of firework romantic way, and then want to be with forever. And I was obsessed with that in my 20s, in a way that I don't think I should have been. But I'm now glad I went through that process, because I had to go through it to understand that it wasn't true. (laughs) Mm. No, that is interesting. Well, I think we all do. Like, there's, there's still that societal concept that your twenties is the time where you meet the one, conventionally, yeah. right? And then your thirties, it's like settle down, have a family, exactly. And that's just the way it goes. So that totally makes sense that you felt that. And, way. and it's interesting as well because you mentioned <clears throat> so rightly in the introduction that professionally speaking, on paper, my twenties seem to be going really well. And I, part of the reason I say I regret that obsession in finding the one is because I'm not sure that I took in that my career was going quite well. Like I didn't have time to fully enjoy it because I was mm. so constantly trying to get somewhere else. And I think that's quite a familiar thing. For yeah. That decade. I did want to ask you about that because I mean, your early journalist career, you you know, first from Cambridge, start off, and then winning the Young Journalist of the Year award. Like you were literally going places, but did you, did you not really revel in that in a way that you wish that you had? I guess I have to say, winning the Young Journalist of the Year award in twenty no two thousand and four. So we're going back, we're going back quite a while, but I'm still trading off it. Like that's the brilliant thing about winning an award. You forever after are award winning. <laughs> It doesn't matter when you won it. Like it could be a rosette in primary school for being punctual. Um, And you are forever award winning. Um, The actual winning of that award was amazing because I didn't expect it. And the year that I was up for it, there was another guy I always remember. He's called Ryan Parry and he worked for the Daily Mirror and he'd got um, a front page scoop because he had gone undercover as a Queen's butler. (laughs) And he got this scoop about how she ate breakfast out of Tupperware and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, well, there's no way. I mean, he was up for Young Journalist of the Year. Um, I was like, there's no way I'm going to win. And then I did. And the actual act and that night, I remember it still did feel very good. And I did feel like, oh, you know, I've always wanted to be a journalist and a writer. And this Mm -hmm. is something that has proved I'm on the right path. But It kind of went quite quickly because I don't know if anyone listening to this is currently a newspaper journalist because I know it's become 
so much more stressful as a career than it was then. But it was still quite stressful in that there were so many changes of uh, editors. So my boss would change with quite like frequent regularity in that there would be lots of issues around circulation or whatever, or a new person would take over and there was constant restructuring. So quite soon after that, I got a new boss and then I sort of felt like I was sliding back and I felt like I wasn't seen for what I could do. And Mm. all of those things are really frustrating in your twenties because most of us are trying to make a place for ourselves on a career ladder and also in a personal life. And a lot of the time, that space that we're trying to create is controlled by other people. A lot Mm -hmm. of the time, we're not our own bosses. And that's a really frustrating place to be. So Mm -hmm. yes, it felt good, but I don't think I allowed, I don't think I felt that I was building on that feeling enough. Yeah, I hear you. And do you know what? That just reminded me of, something you said in philosophy which was actually from the Mogauda equation about how in your 20s your experience and your expectation diverge and I think that is so true because we go into it thinking that we're going to achieve all this stuff and for me especially yeah. like from about 20 to 23 I was you know, pretty miserable a lot of the time because I was like I don't know what yeah. I'm doing I have no idea there's no formula there's no one telling me that I'm doing a good job like adulting sucks exactly well, that's the thing, because for so many of us, our 20s are the first decade that we have out of full-time education. And my experience of school was very much like you do exams, you hopefully do well in them, and you get approval if you do well in them. So there's this kind of cycle of, oh, well, I know my worth as a person. I mean, that's incorrect, by the way. Like This, <laughs> this was my flawed thinking was, yeah, if I do yeah. well at exams, then I will be loved. Like. <laughs> Um, and if you carry that thinking into your twenties, it's really confusing and overwhelming because there is no exam you can take to show that you're being a good adult. And there is no one to say, I love you because you're achieving. Mm. Like that doesn't happen in a place of work. And it didn't happen for me in the relationships I was in either because you're experimenting there as well. Mm. So you're right. That's it. And I'm so glad you quoted that because as you know, Mo Gada is not only one of my favorite podcast guests of all time, but my own personal life guru mm. who has taught me so much about expectation and experience and about how if instead of doing exams well at school, we are also taught how to manage our expectations of life, we could all be so much more contented. Mm. So true. Did you find that you were in a rush to get places in your 20s because that's something that I personally see a lot of it's like everyone wants to achieve something quickly and I don't know whether that's because I've been raised in a world of sort of instant gratification and instant hits and dopamine and stuff like where the world is so available and it's so open and you can do so much did you experience that as well that's such an interesting point because I definitely did experience that but I didn't have the same level of cultural immediacy in the sense that Deliveroo didn't exist. (laughs) Um, Instagram didn't exist. You know, the internet, I make myself sound like I was born in 1822, but the internet was essentially all like just about taking off when I went to university. So it was still like, you know, when I joined the Evening Standard, it was my first job out of uni, you could still smoke in the office. Like that's how... (laughs) how far back it was. Um, But 
uh, you're so right that I definitely did feel like I needed to get somewhere quickly. Mm. So my 20s, it still felt very competitive. And although we didn't have like the crushing overwhelm of competing with everyone that we see globally on Instagram, we did experience the competitiveness amongst our peer groups. Mm. And I was living in a house sharing Clapham, like almost everyone else who'd recently graduated. (laughs) Um, And uh, so it was quite easy to find people to compare yourself to, but the scale was smaller. But I think actually the person I was comparing myself most to was was myself. Like I am my own toughest critic and I've learned a lot more self-compassion as the years have gone on mm. because I've just realized that my own expectations for myself are deeply unrealistic <laughs> and I wouldn't have those same expectations of anyone else. I really wouldn't. Um, but I think I was my own worst critic. And I think your 20s, again, there's this kind of mythology that you have to achieve things young for the achievement to be worthwhile or to be of merit. Mm. And I just remember living in a sort of semi-fear of no longer being young, of, of reaching 30 and feeling like no one would ever say about me again, wow, you're so young to be doing this. Like, mm. And that was really important to me. It's sort of part of my identity. And I, yeah, so I, to, to cut a very long answer short, I definitely did still feel that. And because I was very clear at quite a young age in a sort of very odd way about what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an author. And before that, I was going to be a journalist and I was going to learn my writing craft. So in a way, I set myself my goals and I was quite impatient to get there. I was like impatient to be a feature writer on a newspaper and then to start writing novels. And my 20s, I was like a news reporter, a diary columnist, a religious affairs correspondent. And I was like, oh, so frustrated that I was sort of almost there, but not quite. Mm. I mean, patience pays off, doesn't it? Because I mean, look at you now. Like, I wonder if you you ever thought that that was going to happen. Never in a million years. I I never thought I would launch a podcast, number one. Mm. I mean, it's not that I eliminated it from my consciousness but actually back then podcast didn't exist so it wasn't even on the radar but it was just it was such a lesson to me I mean the last few years of my life have been a huge growing period for me and that's why I really do value the chance to say on this podcast if anyone is listening and feeling lost in their 20s but actually in any particular decade it's okay because it, it just, it might not be, it might not feel like it's your time right now. That's not to say that you won't grow into something that you couldn't even have anticipated. Mm. And my experience has definitely been that I feel more successful. And when I say successful, I mean more in tune with who I really am. <laughs> I definitely feel much, like, far more authentic, content, fulfilled, Mm. with every year that passes and I definitely feel like I've hit my stride in my 40s in a way that I couldn't have imagined in my 20s and so we've been sold a myth that youth is the most powerful state we can inhabit and I just want to deconstruct that and say you know maybe you're having a brilliant time in your 20s and I'm so happy for you but if you're not age is actually where for me all of my strength and power has come from. 
and all of my self-realization. So I think that's a really, that's why I love the premise of this podcast. (laughs) That is so reassuring to hear. And also thinking about you saying about the standstill state. So I have this analogy called the M25 analogy. I travel a lot for work, so I'm constantly stuck on the motorway, right? And I was there the other what day. What is your work? Sorry, I work in telly. I work in TV. So like go on different you? locations. Yeah, like entertainment okay. formats. Yeah, uh, which is fun. Um, but I was stuck on the, the M25 and I was looking at this red Ford and it started off behind me and we came to standstill traffic. And you know when people start weaving in and out of the lanes and he was literally yeah. going like this. He was just doing this thing. Yeah. And I was getting increasingly frustrated because my lane literally wasn't moving and either side of me, cars were moving. So I went into another lane and then that one stopped. And I was like, I can't do anything right. I was very overtired at this point. Yeah. And then I realized it sort of occurred to me that the only reason I'm getting worked up about this is because I want to be moving as quickly as the other cars around me. And as soon as I sort of like surrendered to the fact that we are all driving somewhere different and ultimately, unless something really awful happens, we're all going to get there. I just felt so chilled out. I was like, I respect you for doing your, you know, your lane hopping and whatever, but this is my journey and I'm going to go on it. And that's I think, an amazing metaphor. <laughs> I mean, it probably has a fault somewhere down the line when, but I think that that's where the trepidation and the fear of this decade comes from. It's like the perceived need to achieve and get to places quickly while comparing yourself to somebody who's actually going somewhere totally different to you. Yes. Oh my God. Can I steal that? That's so good. <laughs> it's so good on multiple levels because actually the guy in the red car probably didn't get anywhere more quickly, mm. but it made him feel as though he were doing something. Mm. And then the other thing that I always get in that situation is that I change a lane and I'm like, I'm in the right lane. And then as you say, then that lane stops and you think like the universe has it in for you. <laughs> you're like why is it and and, and I'm like I always have to remind myself Elizabeth the universe really doesn't give a shit (laughs) that you're like sitting for two minutes in traffic it's got bigger things to concern itself with like the bigger plan of your life and everyone around you Um, but it's I think it's quite funny and there's a sense of like starring in the film of your own life Mm. where at its most extreme, there's this kind of entitlement that makes you forget the existence of everyone else. And I think that's something to be hyper aware of, especially mm. in this age of like social media and sharing posts and acting very much as if you're like a celebrity in your own existence. Mm. Because ultimately, you need to remember that other people exist and other people have an impact on where you are. And at the same time as they're having different destinations, we're all connected. So there's a need for sort of human understanding Mm -hmm. and that human understanding totally encompasses what you said, which is like, I'm going somewhere different. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even know where I'm going. And I, I love that metaphor so much. The standstill (laughs) metaphor. Very good. Yes. M25. (laughs) Who knew there was a silver lining to being late for work, but there we go. Um, You've been really honest in your interviews and in your columns about, you know, your dating and relationships and the struggles throughout your 20s and your 30s. And and one thing that you've said, which has really stuck out to me, is um, you've said that one of your struggles was, who am I unless I'm making someone else happy? And I came out of a long-term relationship last year, and that is exactly how I felt. Like, I couldn't, I read it actually at the time, and I was like, oh my God, like, this is 
this is me, you know, who am I? What do I want? I've spent six years of my life, you know, a version of myself, but is that me? And I just wanted to ask you, you know, as someone who was in various long-term relationships, how did you navigate those feelings of identity and what were the repercussions of those? First of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your relationship. Oh, that's okay. We're on good I terms. Just feel, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's super no, it's impressive. Really, You're it's so really enlightened. <laughs> Teach me your ways. <laughs> um, I think heartbreak really, I think it's very tough. And I do write about it. I've compared it to a specific form of grief. It's so difficult to get through. And I think it's often trivialized and actually it's just such a deep, profound pain. At least that's my experience of it. <clears throat> and I think if you are a feeling sensitive person and if it, and if you do care what other people think of you and also making other people happy, then it carries an extra layer of resonance and <laughs> how I dealt with it. Okay. Well, there are distinct phases of my life. So as you mentioned in your superlative introduction, I referred to my 20s as a period of having a series of mini marriages. I didn't actually get married, but I had a series of long-term monogamous relationships where I often felt like I'd fallen into <laughs> a sort of hyper-traditional version of marriage where I would be the one getting all the groceries and thinking about what we were going to eat. And we weren't even living together. And I would still think, well, he's coming over tonight, so what should I get? And what does he like? And what should I put in the fridge? And and at the same time as I was working full-time as well, I just assumed that role because I was like, if I'm perfect, then no one will ever leave me. And obviously that imploded mm. <laughs> constantly because when you're striving to be perfect and to please others, you actually outsource your sense of self to other people and you're not being real because no one can be perfect. It's actually so much better to be mm. flawed and authentic and to live your honest self. And how I dealt with, with uh, that loss of identity every time a relationship broke up in my 20s was not the right way to deal with it. But in my 20s, it was literally to go out with someone almost the following day <laughs> and to establish the next long-term monogamous relationship, which would mm. enable me not to look at who I actually was, mm. all the things that were dysfunctional in my own psyche, but just to like continue on this hamster wheel of... Mm. Of, of, of serious relationships that weren't actually going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Then I first went into therapy when I was 29, um, partly as a result of that and also partly as a result of feeling like I wasn't going anywhere in my career, even though in retrospect I can see that I was, but that was a feeling of stagnancy. And therapy, as you'll know from listening to me and reading me, I'm a huge advocate of therapy. I still have therapy and it really helped me see what I was doing. And it really helped me understand where some of my behaviors were coming from. So then in my thirties, and perhaps we can come back to this, but I got married to the wrong person and divorced. The aftermath of that breakup was obviously more profound than any of the previous ones. And I really relied on my friends. My friends were utterly amazing. And they reassured me that I had an identity outside of that. And not only that, but they preferred me being flawed and vulnerable than the image of project, uh, projected perfection I've been trying to convince everyone with. Mm. So that I really lent into my friends. I just don't know what I would have done without them, particularly my best friend, Emma, who was just 
a total rock and who saw where things were going before I did. And I realized then that I'd spent a lot of time living a semi-numb life where it felt like I was behind a perspex screen. And suddenly this perspex screen shattered. And actually, although it was incredibly sad and difficult, alongside that, there was a sense of liberation and opportunity of like, oh, okay. So the things that I thought I was meant to do, and I put that in quotation marks, didn't actually work out for me. So now maybe I can choose what I want to do. So what is that? And that was the first time I asked myself that question. Mm. And now, I mean, I had one serious relationship post-divorce. And when that ended brutally out of the blue, three weeks before my 39th birthday, that was the worst breakup I've ever had. I'm grateful for it now, not only because we weren't right for each other, but also because out of that wreckage, I launched How to Fail, which changed my life for the better. Mm. And actually with that one, it was so tough, but I didn't feel I'd lost my identity. Mm. So the reason it was tough was because I felt I'd lost a future, a projected future of, I still want to get married and have kids. Like I still wanted that. That was for me. I know it's not for everyone. And suddenly I was left sort of staring down the barrel of my 40s thinking, wow, that seems really far away from me now and it might never happen. And so I was sort of grieving that, but I didn't grieve my loss of identity. So I think I'd learned something along the way. Mm. And just to bring this to a conclusion, the way I dealt with that breakup was to know that I was going to survive it Mm. because I knew that every time I'd failed in a relationship before I had also survived it. And that gave me a real sense of strength. And I was like, Oh, I'm a stronger person than I thought I was. And I actually went to LA for a month, which if you, if anyone can manage that kind of thing, like that kind of thing where you shift out of your normal life and you go somewhere different and there are different horizons, both literally and figuratively, Mm I find I found that very, very helpful because I was able just to take a breath and be like, okay, what do I do next? What kind of life do I want? Who am I? But the one thing I never doubted was I've got this and I can get through it, even though it sucks. I rate that. I rate that because that takes sheer guts and bravery to like actually fully believe it. And I think the reason that so it's so hard to be authentic because if you are authentic in a relationship and then you get rejected, that's like cuts the core. Whereas yes. if you're like always a little bit, oh no, this is me. Then yes. when that rejection happens, it's like, it's like, I don't know, maybe a defense mechanism. So it hurts. Oh God, I think that's such a good point. And I think that's why the breakup I referred to, the one that three is for my 39th birthday was so tough because I really did feel like I'd made different decisions. Mm. And I really did feel I was being more myself and more honest. And I also think I used that relationship. It was a bit of a hangover from my twenties as emotional scaffolding. So I didn't have to deal with the full impact of my divorce. And so when that relationship ended, I was also dealing with the divorce stuff that I hadn't processed. Mm. But I think you're right. It's like that thing when you're like, oh my God, I risked being vulnerable. And now this has happened. What more Mm. can I do? And you know what really helped me? I know this sounds ridiculous. (laughs) Love Island really helped me. (laughs) (laughs) Because because there are certain seasons of Love Island where honestly it just opened my eyes to how men, certain men, view dating Mm. And it really like, uh, and actually part of the reason I used to love Love Island, I haven't seen this season at all, but 
is because I would see how the women, and I appreciate that I'm talking from an extremely heteronormative perspective here when I'm citing Love Island, but generally speaking, the women would rally around each other and they would kind of analyse what had happened. And they, I, I, it, I just, I gained a lot of sort of strength that I yeah. wasn't alone. And I gained a lot of understanding of like emotional fuckwittage and gaslighting <laughs> and like what, why it didn't necessarily mean that I was in the wrong. And I honestly, I'm a huge believer that reality television can teach us, good reality television can teach us so much about ourselves. <laughs> I know. I really want to talk to you about um, Married at First Sight because I love it, but we don't have time and I'm going. So oh, sorry, <laughs> we move. <laughs> Um, but one thing I did, I think when you were saying that is, do you think that you are a relationship person? And I say that in quotations, because what does that even mean? Because for Mm. me, people are always like, oh, Emma, you're such a relationship person. I'm like, okay, so does that mean that I'm reliant on someone else, that I'm shit at dating? Like, what are you trying to say? (laughs) Um, yeah, what is that? Well, I would take that as meaning that you're someone who values deep connection which is Mm. a really beautiful quality and for me probably the most important quality of all (laughs) that that you possibly don't get those profound connections when you're dating Mm. and you really want to embed yourself with a person and understand them and what makes them tick and like give your time to experiencing and sharing the world with them. You know, when I won that Young Journalist Award, I got a £5,000 travel bursary, which was amazing given that I was 24 at the time. And I spent it on the most incredible trip going to like South Africa and Uganda and Zanzibar and then like tacking a week on Sydney at the end. And it was the most extraordinary trip, but I was on my own. And it really made me realise like how important it is to have someone with you to share a memory with Mm. because otherwise I don't know it's just that's what humanity is right like otherwise Mm. we're just each living our individual experiences and you can't I feel like there's greater meaning to be had through the understanding and communication of something so I think that's what it means and am I a relationship person I mean Yes, in that respect, but it, mm. but it's not just a romantic relationship. My relationship with my best friend, <clears throat> also called Emma, best name ever, <laughs> is, you know... That's so funny, my best friend's called Elizabeth. That's <gasps> so weird, kidding. I just realised that, yeah. Oh, and she's an Elizabeth rather than a Liz. <laughs> no, she is a Lizzie, but... She's a Liz, she's a Lizzie. Lizzie. I love yeah. a Lizzie, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Some of my closest friends call me Lizzie. Um, she's bedrock of my life I I don't know what I would do without her she knows me better than I know myself like and that's something that has come through a a really instant connection when I first met her but has grown so deep over the years that I really hugely value that and actually when I was single in my late 30s and doing the online dating and all of that and um and I had a couple of like really lovely friends be like okay you want a child so maybe you should focus on that right now and you should go to clinic and get a sperm donor and just get pregnant and do it and do that first and then find someone that you want to share your life with romantically and that was never for me I really admire people who do that but it it was actually really interesting it made me realize that as much as I yearn and really want to be a mother I wanted the relationship in place first so I do think I am but I'm also an introvert (laughs) 
which might surprise you. Um, but I'm, I'm a sort of introvert who's learned how to appear extrovert when necessary, which I think is a, the case for a lot of us. Mm. So I need my own time and my own space within that relationship. Mm. And in terms of the failures of, you know, I mean, so far, let's not stick it to the 20s. Let's just go all of them. Yeah. What do you think is the failure that you are most thankful for happened? Do you know, I've never been asked that before. It's such a good question. <laughs> um, well, I'm, the most the most immediate answer that comes to mind is is that breakup. Mm. The one that I had before my 39th birthday, because I know I wouldn't have ended that relationship. I would have lost myself trying to make that work. Mm. And I'm really glad that I didn't go through that. I'm really glad that... He, he made that decision as much as it was unexpected. And out of that relationship, not only came the launch of how to fail, but a series of huge life changes. I could never have anticipated that were all because I was forced to confront myself as I really was. Mm. And it was just the ultimate act of self realization and I and I and I would never have met Justin who is now my beloved husband (laughs) were it not for those things happening so were it not for having a period of like dating wilderness on the apps which was so horrendous but also a fund of hilarious anecdotes which I'm now grateful for but I met Justin on an app I met him on hinge I I would never I don't think I would have met him before Mm -hmm. and it just so happened that I met him at a time in his life where he'd been through a divorce and he'd been through a journey to like discover himself. And so we met at the right moment for each other. So I think we got your rom-com. You got your 90s. I got your rom-com. But it didn't feel like a rom-com. This is like, it's, it felt like the best kind of rom-com in that it wasn't, I mean, I had to, it was fireworks in the sense that like when I met him, I was like, oh my God, you're really good looking, which as anyone will know, if you've ever been online app dating, it hardly ever happens. Um, And there was an immediate chemistry, but it was a real slow burner for me because I'd been so hurt and it was for him too. And he's such a clear communicator that there was no emotional fuckwittage. And I misread that as like, what a weirdo. (laughs) Like, who is this? This strange alien being who's not playing games with my head and it took me a while to get around that so uh yeah it's but I'm so grateful for all that so I think that's the failure that I'm most lucky to have experienced Mm, love that love that well on the topic of relationships let's talk about magpie so you have it there I'm so prepared um yeah your lovely publicist sent this to me and I'm not gonna lie Elizabeth I didn't just read it I devoured it in about three days so um loved it give our um listeners a little bit of an overview I know that might be difficult because there is a pretty hefty plot twist in there but did did the twist surprise you it did it very much surprised me excellent I was not expecting it (laughs) um Magpie is the story of three people. Uh, It's a couple living in a house in South London and they are trying for a baby. And then a mysterious and slightly sinister lodger moves in. And there's a strange dynamic at work between the three of them. 
and you read on hopefully to find out why and what that dynamic is Mm. and it's a book that explores our mythologized obsession around motherhood around the difficulties that that can encompass about obsession and jealousy and class and relationships between the generations and also between women Mm. Um, and the reason I am, as you say, the reason I am being slightly vague is because there is a twist that I don't want to give away because I'm someone who, whenever I read a book or watch a film and there's a twist in it, nine times out of 10, I will guess it. <laughs> so I really, really, really wanted to make this a good twist. Mm. And the only two twists that I can think of that I haven't got in other works are Gone Girl, which I believe is the biggest, like the best twist of all time one just a, such an amazing book mm. and the sixth sense the film um which i won't give away if no one's seen it so i wanted it to be like that so that's why i'm being slightly vague and i probably need to work on my elevator pitch a bit more <laughs> to make it sound more enticing but it's basically motherhood rage and obsession there we go <laughs> nice love that love that yeah i mean i hope you don't mind if i quote from it it's just one sentence no. i don't give anything away but one Nothing thing to. that really stood out to me was um you wrote when you are a mother you are never truly alone and I think that it was so profound to me because ultimately our biggest fear is is dying alone you know coming to the end of our life and no one's there to hold our hand and I know a lot of authors hate it when people try to you know read between the lines and assimilate things that they've written in fiction to their personal lives but for me like obviously having heard and read about you know so many of your struggles with IVF and and Mm. struggling to conceive in the past like that particular quote really moved me. And I just wanted to ask you whether you believe that to be true when you're a mother, you are never truly alone. Because in the context of the book, that isn't always the case. Yes. I don't hate it when people ask me questions about (laughs) my uh, personal inflections at all, because actually Magpie came from a deeply personal space and it came from a conversation with a friend of mine I'm about to name drop horribly, Clang. But I, only because I want to give her credit. I was talking to Phoebe Waller-Bridge about it. And I was like, I, I was sort of um, stuck. I was writing something and I wasn't sure where I was going. And she said to me, the only thing I can ever write about in my life is what's going on right now. And she said, that's why Fleabag season two was about falling in love because she was falling in love at the time that she was writing it. And, and obviously she didn't mean like, you know, do a documentary of your life, but you can use the kernel of whatever you're obsessed with at that given moment in time and twist it into something. And for some reason, her saying that massively unlocked something in me. And I was like, well, what am I preoccupied with right now? And it was the urge to have children and the biological sadness of that not being straightforward for me. Mm. And I wanted to put all of that into Magpie. And my perception of motherhood is therefore skewed because I'm not a mother. I know lots of very kind people say to me, but you are a mother in myriad ways. And I am actually a stepmother now. And, you know, I have a beloved cat and I have 10, soon to be 12 godchildren. Yes. (laughs) I'm surprised isn't up here, but maybe it's too hot. Um, (laughs) But for me, I suppose because I'm surrounded by other people's children so much, I really yearn for my own. It doesn't have to be my biological child, but I really yearn to be able to be someone's mother. I just 
so want that. And my perception is very much that like, when you have a child, there is always someone who is innately attached or part of you, (laughs) no matter what life that child goes on to live. And they might end up hating you and never speaking to you and you might end up estranged, but that tends to be quite rare. Mm. And even if that happens, there's still an innate connection there. And I suppose I'm just nosy about life. I'm a bit like curious. I'm like, I so long to experience this thing that I haven't yet experienced. Mm. So I suppose that's what I mean by that, that almost there's always a part of you. (laughs) And, And I see the love that my husband has for his children and it's specific and different and um and there's always someone you know in the early days who thinks you're amazing Mm. (laughs) and that's not why I want a child to be like (laughs) I'm glad you think I'm amazing uh, toddler um and I know that that's not always the case but it's but it's about that I'm trying I'm not being very eloquent but it's about the specificity of that bond Mm. and at the same time as I know it's a specific kind of love as every kind of love is I'm also aware that it really hurts me and hurts many women who've gone through similar journeys when mothers or fathers talk about the, the uniqueness of the love that they feel for their children and how no one can ever understand unless they've been through it and how having a child has quote unquote completed them that language feels very very exclusive and unfriendly to people who have tried and failed to have children. Mm -hmm. But I do also think that we're allowed to say that there are different kinds of love. And this one seems to be a particularly profound one that will Mm -hmm. always be part of you. Mm -hmm. But you can totally tell that from reading the book and like the way that you depict, you know, infertility struggle is, something which I just found so deeply moving but also incredibly uncomfortable but in such an important way and like I've never read a book like that before where it's it's shone a light on on those issues but within the context of the book in a way which not only elevates you know all the characters but also just does something to you which tries to make you understand how incomprehensible that must feel because I don't think anyone ever sort of sits down and thinks what that must feel like you know, I cannot tell you how much that means to me to hear you say that. Oh. That is literally the thing that I would most want someone to say about Magpie. Oh. I was so aware that I wanted to put in all of my own experiences of fertility because I feel like I've there. I've been through many, many facets of it. I've had IVF. I've had miscarriages. I've frozen my eggs. I've had various operations on my womb that I won't go into. And like, you know, I've, there are, there are so many aspects of it that I've experienced. And I, like you, I hadn't read that in a way that I felt fully represented that experience in a novel, let alone a novel with a thriller like aspect to it. Mm. And so I, I wanted to put it somewhere where people would read it, who wouldn't pick up a fertility memoir necessarily, Mm. but, it, it would be there because for me, it's just such an integral 
huge part of the human experience. And because it's a predominantly female experience, it's been marginalized for centuries and it deserves its place in the literary canon. And so I'm so glad that you said that. Thank you. Oh, well, it's definitely and its place, 100%. And where can people find it? When's it out? It's out on the 2nd of September, available in all good local independent bookshops, also at Waterstones, also on the big website we've all been using during the pandemic, but don't want to admit to. Um, and if you go to my Instagram, there's a link in my bio that links to all the different places you can buy it. And pre-orders massively help. So if you did feel moved to pre-order, I would be hugely, hugely grateful. <laughs> I was jokes because I actually pre-ordered it and then obviously this happened. So now I've got two. <laughs> oh, now you've got two. Well, that's very special. Not many it people is. have that proof. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> cool. So we're going to go on to play Millennial Minesweeper now. It's just a fun okay. little game I play at the end. It's a quotes game. Um, I read you out some quotes and you have to, well, you don't have to if you want to, you just talk about them, um, like whether you agree with them, what that sort of means to you. Great. So our first one is, every love story is a tragedy if you wait long enough. Okay. I love that quote. I don't agree with it. (laughs) I think what I would say is every love story can be a tragedy if you look at it a certain way. If you apply a certain lens of perspective, you could see everything as a tragedy. And actually, that's a really interesting, it brings us back to Mo Gaudat, who is all about our expectations and our perceptions of life. If we go out in the morning and it looks like a clear day, so we don't take our umbrella, we'll be disappointed when it rains. If we go out with an umbrella and it happens to rain, then we're equipped to deal with it. So it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, it's just a slightly different perception and a level of preparation. So I do believe that a love story can be perceived a certain way that makes it seem like a tragedy or even a horror. But I don't think that every love story... And well, I don't know, that's actually really, that's making me really think. Because I suppose actually a love story can be so wonderful and lifelong and then a partner will inevitably die. So therefore it is tragic, but it's a tragic aspect. It doesn't define the love story. So that's why I don't agree with it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah, it was from, um, the commander says it in The Handmaid's Tale. So uh, I sort of was watching it and listening to it. I was like, oh, I've written that down. That's so good. Um, yes, but it made so do me, you agree with it? I, I'm with you. I think that, yeah. but, but when you came to that conclusion in the end, that like, obviously tragedy, you know, how do we define a tragedy in Shakespeare? And, you know, it's, it's a love story and then people die. And maybe yes. that's what life is. So in yes. that respect, then I guess it is. But yeah, you're so right in terms of, you know, shaping your mind to to believe that it to be a tragedy instead of like a a wonderful thing that's yes. happened and that just reminds me of um your podcast with Alan de Botton and that's that was so profound for me in terms of getting through all my relationships it's like why can't we celebrate relationships for what they were instead of why they ended oh my gosh I'm so glad you picked that that up because that's one of my favorite things mm. that's ever been said on the podcast a relationship isn't a failure just because it ends and that's, that's probably one of the biggest learnings of my life, <laughs> that actually I've got so much from relationships that have ended and we can celebrate that. Mm, 100%. Cool. So our second one is, 
When can you be ready for anything? Or is life, in fact, a continuum of things you must prepare for? And only with perfect preparation can you exist in the present. I don't agree with that at all. I think... It's now you're going to say you actually wrote that <laughs> no it's from it was in sloan's chapter you know three women by lisa today yes, yes yes so it was in it was sloan one of the characters says it i okay that's so funny. i love lisa today so much and actually was speaking to her yesterday mm-hmm. she came on how to fail we've met once in real life but we're like kindred spirits i mean it the the, the connection i have with her is so crazily beautiful and intense like we email email all the time and she's been there for me through some really dark times so I love oh. her but it, so Sloan says that so that's not Lisa Sloan yeah um I don't agree with that because I think you can absolutely be in the present when things are really messy and unresolved and actually that's a really good way to be present mm. is to allow things to be flawed and unanticipated Mm, 100% and the more you read it the more you realize it's actually a paradox because she said it says the continuum of things you must prepare for and only with perfect preparation can you exist in the present however that would constitute the fact that in the present you would have to be preparing for the future which then means you wouldn't be in the present at all great point I mean it's alliterative which I appreciate. I like the, the conjunction of several P's, yes. but yes, I totally agree. It doesn't make sense. Sorry, yeah. slow. But I do love three women. <laughs> I love three women. It's such a good book. Um, okay. And our final one is you must remember that no decision is ever really the wrong decision because it's the decision you made at the time. Respect your past self and her choices. That's beautiful. And I completely mm. agree <laughs> because any decision that you make, even if it feels like the wrong one at the time, will lead you, I believe, to where you're intended to be. Mm. And I do have this whole side of me, which I'm sure because you listen to the podcast so beautifully and (laughs) (laughs) intently that you you will have heard me say again and again, that one of my favourite quotes is the universe is unfolding exactly as it should. And that's brought me a lot of comfort. And even if it's not true. (laughs) I choose to believe that it is. And therefore there are things at work in this mysterious planet that lie completely beyond our perception and our control. And we can't anticipate everything. And so we can't possibly make the right decisions all the time because we don't have all of the available information. Mm. But if you make a different decision from the one that you thought you were going to, I promise you that there'll be an adventure on the other side. Mm-hmm. That's that's the thing that I've learned, that actually when stuff goes off course and when instead of being on the M25 and a standstill, you choose to take a sort of mad country by road and you don't really know where you're going, <laughs> you'll learn something really invaluable. And it might be fun and it might be beautiful and it might be so much more powerful than you ever could have imagined when you were on the M25. Mm. So I love that quote. Where's that from? That's Emma Gannon from her new book, Olive. Oh my God, Emma yeah. Gannon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Emma. <laughs> Emma's of the world unite. Emma's of the world. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but what you were saying there about, you know, looking back on past decisions, it reminded me of a conversation I was having the other day with a friend about, do you think people fear failure or regret more? 
That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel more afraid of regret, but one of the things that I've really learned doing the podcast and writing my books is that a fear of failure is a really widespread phenomenon. Mm. And a lot of people feel that very deeply and would rather not take the risk and feel safe than take the gamble and potentially grow. Whereas for me, I've always been someone who would, to a greater or lesser extent, take the risk because I don't want to live with the regret of not having done it. Mm. And I do tend to think that you regret the things that you say no to. You never really regret, my experience is, the things that you have done. As much as they might have caused you pain or heartbreak or you wish you'd done things differently, they've led you somewhere that you needed to be. They've led you somewhere, they've led you where you are now. So for me, it's regret, but I'm not sure What's your, I'm not sure whether I could extrapolate that that's the case for most people. Yeah. What's your no. greater fear? I, I think also regret, but then I don't really believe that regret can exist as a concept because everything that you've done, it's sort of like that yeah. quote, you know, everything that you've ever done is because at that moment in your life, that was what you wanted if you're being authentic. So actually yes. maybe regret can only come if you are not being the true version of you and then that could be a regret I think yeah I I agree like if you're putting your full self forward and you are stepping into your power at every moment of your life which again is a kind of impossible thing but if that's your aspirational goal and you can say to yourself for instance I fully committed to this job or I put in my best effort for this exam or I know I couldn't have done anything more to save that relationship. There's a, there's a peace and a calm and a quietude that comes from that, even if the thing itself fails. Mm. Oh, just wanted to <laughs> sit with that. <laughs> Let it wash over me. Oh my gosh, Elizabeth, this has just been like the best hour of my life. I'm just going to say oh, it. I just, honestly, so I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to thank you on behalf of like every listener, every reader of yours, because you do have such an impact on so many people's lives that I don't think you realize. And that for me personally, I would not have got through the last two years without like your constant weekly reassurance. So yeah, this has definitely been the highlight of my twenties so far. So thank oh, you. Oh, Emma, you, can I just say, this was such an amazing interview. You are a brilliant interviewer and podcaster. Your voice is so good. The, like, I'm so impressed by your questions and like just your lovely, easy manner where you make it seem like it is all just flowing so naturally. And I know how much work that takes. I, I'm deeply, deeply honoured and I think you're doing great things and I can't are you actually still in your 20s yeah I'm 25 shut up it's outrageous you're 25 you have so much talent this is like insane oh my god I you're don't. 20 you're so wise oh my god I'm so glad I didn't know that at the beginning I was so intimidated 25 and you've come up with the m25 motorway standstill metaphor what greatness lies ahead honestly I'm just thank you thank you thank you thank you it's been deeply moving for me I mean start off with a flood of tears
<laughs> I've loved it. Thank you okay. for having me. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll see you at the Barbican on second. <gasps> Are you coming? Yes. yes. When's this going out, this episode, do you know? Well, I was going to put it out maybe like the, well, when do you want it out? Talk to you. I mean, before first? the second would be amazing. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that would Wednesday be, I normally you. do. So I think Wednesday's the first, yeah, because Thursday's second. You're so lovely. Yeah. So if anyone's listening and you'd like to come to the Barbican mm. tomorrow night, the 2nd of September, to see me in conversation with Dolly Alderton, the little known Dolly. I don't know how many people might have heard of her, but she's a, she's a mildly successful author and podcaster. I'm kidding. She's a genius. I love her. She's one of my closest friends and we're going to have a riotous time. And I'm so glad you're coming, Emma. Please do you come and say hello afterwards. I mean, absolutely. I'll be there. I'll take your, I'll take your number. I won't do that on air, obviously. <laughs> I give everyone the opportunity to slide into my DMs. Why not? Oh, <laughs> cool. Thank, thank you so you. much. All I can say is that whoever said never meet your idols clearly had very poor taste. What a way to round off the fourth season of the podcast. I am so incredibly grateful to each and every single one of you for your continued support. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to leave a review, then feel free to do so on iTunes. And you can also reach out to us on Instagram at 20 not something as well to share any of your thoughts, feelings or suggestions for the podcast. It's been a bit of a roller coaster of a year for me in many ways, and this podcast has been the outlet of a lot of emotional baggage. So thanks for putting up with my voice for yet another season, and I hope to be back at some point in the autumn with more treacherous tales of this messy decade. Um, so take care, everyone, and remember that, in the wise words of Elizabeth Day herself, perhaps the greatest achievement of this particular decade is actually just living through it.